This week on the show, we're looking at implementing a system call for OpenBSD or maybe not, self-hosted email services on OpenBSD in great detail, the first five minutes on a new FreeBSD server and the settings you should do there, the old computer rescue for the X205, a SEC has been uh, made available of sorts for route-based IPsec VPNs on OpenBSD, sending syslog messages using command line utilities, utilities is what we show you, keeping email sorted the hard way, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 530, Old Computer Rescue, recorded on the 11th of October 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow, find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome to this episode. We like that you have joined us because, hey, it would be very silent just the two of us in a <laughs> podcast recording. Uh, we like to bring you the headlines from the BSD world. And this week we have implementing a system call for OpenBSD. Yeah, this is, I'm going to say, pronounce a lot of words wrong in succession. This is on poolp.org. Poolp, yeah. Um, is by giles oh it's very english names i'm sorry if you're french um, giles or gillis just two l's gillet 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 oh could, yeah not cat we do know they're not cat <laughs> now i've never confirmed that so <laughs> you'll see and if you're in um if you're in the bst now telegram t.me slash bst now uh, this week you've been treated to pictures of my cat Ooh. Because I started another private cat pics group, and so I just posted it through time. I don't don't ask me questions about the problems in my life; they're very strange. Yeah, it's um, very specific. It's the a author. <laughs> the author starts with a TLDR. I found a pirated copy of an assignment I had to do in 2005, back when I was a student, to implement a system call for OpenBSD in Linux. I lost the original LaTeX file, so I decided to rewrite it so I have a digital copy. The article originally covered loadable kernel modules, which is no longer a thing in OpenBSD. I trimmed that part. I also trimmed the Linux part because I didn't care about it back then, and I did the minimum to pass. This article is translated from French. Ah. So thank you for doing all of this work on a very old article, which is now 18 years old. Yeah. <laughs> is that right? No, it's not right. That's not how math works at all. It's old. But hey, it's it's new because this uh, is 18 years. That's so yeah. sad. JT, please cut me not doing maths. I'm sorry. <laughs> Disclaimer. The content of this post is based on an assignment I wrote in 2005, back when I was a student at Epitech. So things have probably changed, and this is by no means a tutorial. Please don't write system calls. Please don't submit them to OpenBSD unless you've been told it's a good idea by the OpenBSD developers. I repeat. Do not implement a syscall with this article. This is meant for knowledge sharing and avo to avoid losing something I wrote and for which I have the only paper version now. Think of it more as an archaeological artifact. 
I accidentally leaked a draft version three years ago, which suddenly became popular and which I had to remove as I wasn't done cleaning. This time I'll be street smart and wait before it's finished to commit. I've made very minor changes for meaning clarification, but have not changed the writing style nor fixed writing errors. This is my writing style from 18 years ago. Translate from French. Um, the examples are very simple, but they are not practical examples you should build upon. They are meant to bootstrap your understanding. Finding errors is an exercise to the reader, and I encourage you to comment or submit pull requests to improve this article. Oh, that's cool. Hmm. I would never take a pull request for a blog post. Uh, a few necessary reminders. Program versus process. People often use two words interchangeably, but it is important to understand the difference between a program and a process, particularly because the same program may be allowed to use a system call on a process and not on another, root versus unprivileged user. But also because the process is part of the syscall API, the system call interface works with a pointer to a struct proc representing a process. A program is an executable which contains a set of instructions that are meant to be executed and do something. It resides as a structured file, it'll out, elf, um, a Mac object, um, on the file system, which enforces restrictions as to who can or cannot execute it, file system permissions and ownership of the file. A process is an instance of that program running in its own memory space with its own privileges. If we take slash bin slash ls, it is a program that lists directories and files. When a user executes it, a process is created, which will actually run the program with the privileges of that user in a memory space that's not shared with other processes. Unix-like systems have an architecture where code is executed in two main areas, the kernel and user land. The kernel is in charge of providing and limiting access to the devices, enforcing restrictions as to what an executing program can do, and providing programs with a virtual memory space in which they can execute. A program executes in user land and performs operations on memory that's allocated to it by the kernel during the initialization of the process. When the program needs to access a device or needs the or needs the kernel to perform an operation that it's not allowed to perform itself, it asks the kernel to trigger a system call. A system call is a function that's part of the kernel and that runs as part of it on behalf of the process. A system call is a service provided by the kernel so that a userland process can request a kernel to do something on its behalf, usually something the userland process is not able or allowed to do on its own. From the point of view of a program, it is somewhat special function that can call similarly to any other function which doesn't run in the process memory space. A program only knows about the system call interface, but doesn't have access to its implementation, so it can call it, pass parameters to it, and obtain a result, but not inspect what happens inside the system call as it runs. It can't debug it. This comes with side effects. Performance-wise, the system call switches the execution to the kernel, which is costly. Bugs in a system call have a different impact from bugs in a function call. A memory corruption bug may cause the process to terminate, whereas the same memory corruption bug in a system call may cause the system to crash. There are two sides to a system call. The system call implementation, which is the root of the code of the system call that a lot that's the system call implementation, which is the actual code of the system call that's going to run inside the kernel when called, and the system call interface, which is how the system call is meant to be called from a user space application. It is important to differentiate both as in OpenBSD, the prototype for the system call implementation does not match the prototype for the system call interface, as we'll see shortly. Um Prerequisites: I use a privileged account. It is obvious that an unprivileged account is not allowed to alter the system, alter the kernel as it enforces permissions on the system. For that reason, it is mandatory to use a privileged account at least for installing a modified kernel. System sources are available directly from the OpenBSD project. For this assignment, we need source.tar.gz and source.sys.tar.gz. Uh, they will also be extracted to the root of the system. Uh, today, you just use git. Um, 
Um, there's yellow edits. They replace sudo with duas. Um, once you have access to the system sources, you can build the kernel using the following commands. Um, cd, the config directory, config generic, cd, compile generic, uh, clean, make dependent install. The rebuild only takes a few minutes, and a backup copy of the previous kernel is performed automatically in case the new kernel is unstable. Rebuilding the system may be necessary if changes to the kernel affect user land tools. It may be the case, for example, if you alter struct proc, which is used by tools such as PSTOP and uname, building them is as simple as um, going to user source make build. Building Rebuilding takes much more time than that for a kernel and can change from several minutes to hours depending on the architecture. System call without parameters, sysgoodbye. First start will implement sysgoodbye system call, which takes no parameters. Its prototype is int goodbye void. And there's an example implementation that says goodbye cruel world. Our first system call only displays the sentence goodbye cruel world on the console. It allows us to see the prototype of a system call difference between user land and the kernel. OMSD provides a unique API for all system calls no matter the prototype which they expose to user land. The headers that are included here are minimal set required for proper operations of a syscall. Some might be unused by our function, but will be used at build time for the kernel's internal plumbing. System calls will limit itself to implementation. A few elements will add up in directory and automatically, as we'll see later on. Our first system call will discard its parameters. Um, struct proc void v and register t retval and use printf and return zero to indicate to the caller that execution went fine. Here, printf is not to be misinterpreted for user land printf. The former is used to output to the console and not standard output. Um, they have an example of a system call with parameters. Unlike the previous example, this function does not ignore its parameters, as it has to extract the integer parameter passed in the user land interface. To do so, it declares a pointer to struct sys show params args, and it has to point to its second parameter, void v. It becomes clear that this parameter somehow represents the user land parameters to a system call. The definition of struct sys show param args is not part of our implementation because it is automatically generated at build time. Each of its fields correspond to a parameter in the user land interface, and this SCARG, SCARG, SCARG macro allows dereferencing the structure correctly. Um, and they have an example of a uh, syscall that returns a parameter. Um, and then they have some more examples doing more stuff. And then they have a find the end with a word from the future. Be kind to 2005's Giles, uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, feel free to comment or submit PR to update this article. In case you were wondering why this would not apply to NetBSD or OpenBSDS is, the interfaces and structures are close enough that it could get you started. If desired, I could write a thing or two on that topic in the, in the future. In case you're also wondering this won't help you write syscalls for Linux, I had a written assignment for that too, implementing the same syscalls in detail in the process, but I didn't enjoy Linux much back then and it showed. And then they recommend you read the following two books which are not linked. Ah, just when it was <laughs> getting interesting. That's, that's really funny. Uh, yeah, so read the following. Yeah, cool. Thank you so much. It's, it's great to see you pull this out of the past. Um, and it's interesting to know what's still relevant. This blog post mm -hmm. is full of yellow highlighted bits, and I think they're updates to the original article. Um, Could yeah, be, thank yeah. You. Fix this. Yeah, nice. All righty. Uh, next up is a, another tutorial kind of style article, but it's quite uh, big. Uh, Self-hosted email services on FreeBSD over at T-U-M-F-A-T-I-G dot net, because I can't pronounce it properly. Uh, nevertheless, oh, that's <laughs> uh, it's uh, quite 
big, but uh, it starts with looking at my notes. It seems I haven't set up an email services server from scratch since 2015. Okay, good choice uh, to start a tutorial about this. Uh, of course, mine have evolved following OpenBSD updates and upgrades. Let's benefit from the fact that I'm migrating from Vulture to OpenBSD Amsterdam to write a few notes about the mail server recreation. So at the time of this writing, OpenBSD is available in version 7.2. So setting up a mail server means all and nothing. Michael W. Lucas probably could uh, yeah, say a thing or two about this. He's writing a book about this currently, how to set up a mail server. But this is um, T-U-M-F-A-T-A-G's view. Uh, so to clarify, here's what they want to be able to do. As a user, they want to receive emails from the wild, wild world. They also want to send emails to the wild, wild world. They also want to manage their mailboxes using several email clients. They want to avoid unsolicited emails as much as possible. Like, who doesn't? As an administrator, I want to be able to manage several email accounts Yeah, for friends and family. Uh, another thing, they also want to do manage address books and calendars, but that's another story and won't be covered here. So in uh, the overview part, in the ancient times, I did a few things quite differently than I will today. So don't expect an updated version of the previous posts I already did. My config is now minimal and enough to deal with 5 to 10 users. So uh, a couple bullet points about this. Users and passwords are managed locally here in etc past WD. So no LDAP, SQL database or anything like that. Every authentication is done this way. Users are created by a local administrator using an SSH connection. Passwords are modified by users using an SSH connection. Email delivery is done by OpenSMTPD uh, using the MailDeer format and no use of DOVCOT, MDA, or LMTP features. Okay. Email protection is done by OpenSMTPD and RSpamD, no use of SpamD. Email submission is done with uh, OpenSMTPD because... Of course, uh, it requires the usage of the TLS connection. It requires authentication to be processed and information from the client IPs are wiped out. Uh, okay, privacy, everything. And archives emails here, uh, those not in the inbox are compressed. Okay, so they add at the beginning a couple users, John Doe or whatever, to just have a way to get into the server. So that's not too uh, exciting. Uh, the, uh, they mentioned here that another way is to limit the commands they can run, or this user should only be allowed to do SSH-based virtual private networks, uh, or read that part from SSH, but nothing else. Okay, so be extra secure and lock that user down. Email domains and addresses. Big tech and most companies offer authentication using email addresses. It's very user-friendly, but I don't like this, <laughs> because since you know the name of a person, you can guess their login. Uh, is it first name dot last name at organization dot whatever? And that's one less thing, I guess, for the attackers. An open SMTPD table lists all email domains the server should accept for local delivery. An open SMTP table lists all email addresses that are legit. It also references every email aliases that I want or need to manage. All those email addresses point to one of the several local users those created previously. Uh, you can read the table man page for more information. So they provide an example for that. The TLS certificate to secure the connection to the server and provide a bit of privacy. Uh, TLS certificate has to be obtained and used by the email daemons. I'll be using Let's Encrypt certificates. Read the ACME client for more detailed information. And here we see how it, that is done. A couple of uh, yeah, 
shell commands. You can find, of course, uh, in full on the blog provided and from our show notes. Receive and sending emails. RSpamD. Receiving email is dependent on RSpamD for spam checking, and sending email is dependent on RSpamD for DKIM assigning. So first thing is to do install and configuring RSpamD. That walks us through this by uh, using package add and config lines needed all down to uh, starting the service uh, and running it. Enabling, of course, RSpamD so that it runs on the next generation. Boot. SMTPD. Open SMTPD uses RSPMD and sender score filters. So you add open SMTP filter sender score package. And the hostname of the server is not the one the SMTP server is known as. So let's still open the SMTPD to use the proper hello name. And that is done by editing edit it's etc mail slash mail name. Okay. Then the big or rather big section for OpenSMTPD's config file is done. If you've looked at a PF config file, you may find certain things very similar because that's what it's based on. So you have a bunch of listen uh, on a certain sockets or TLS ports and stuff. So and a couple match statements. So that's similar to a PF configuration if you want to stretch that example. All right. Uh, they thought DNS filtering was overkill, but looking at the logs, there are about 200 hits per day for the current RDNS and FC RDNS filters. So let's keep them. And they start, of course, SMTPD and uh, check that the config is fine. All right. Reading and managing emails. Accessing emails with a decent mail client will be provided by Dovcot. So that is added and a couple local configs are done. All fine, uh, including the keys, SSL, certs, as well. Further down, they add the Dovecot pigeonhole so that you have uh, spam also under control, hopefully. Uh, then there's a section about it's not DNS. Sometimes it is DNS. To be able to receive email from the wide, wide world, the mail domains will require proper MX records. And to be able to send email to the world, lowering the chance of being rejected as spam, the mail domains need a couple of DNS records. So you need to set up an A record for the IPv4 server address, a quad, quad A address uh, for IPv6 server addresses, IPv4 PTR record matching the A record, and the same for IPv6. Tell the world that the server can receive emails for your domains, an MX record referencing the server's name, all fine and good. And they also walk you through what you have to do in these uh, properly planned text records because these are required for DKIM domain keys, sender policy framework domain rules, and DMARC domain policy. And that's quite a stuff that you now have to do to actually be able to send email nowadays. One more thing at the end, RSPMD has a nice reporting web GUI. By default, it only listens to localhost and accesses granted unauthenticated. Steps are required to set a password. One way to access the web page is to use SSH port forwarding feature. And there you can just browse to your local hosts, uh, in this case, 11334 port and enjoy. There are probably ways to grab those metrics and send them to InfluxDB so they can be rendered using Grafana. So this is the case of SMTPD logs, but that's another story. Happy mailing. Cool. Very nice. And I also look forward to Lucas's book to just know what's involved in sending email. Wonderful. And then we have a blog post by Herb Bischoff. Um... And they write the first five minutes on a new FreeBSD server. This is inspired by a 2013 blog post by Saul Love. 
Um, it is in no way a complete guide, and when setting up more than one instance at a time, you should probably automate most of or all of these steps. For the occasional server setup, it's good enough checklist to work through. The snippets are compatible with a basic copy and paste approach. Uh, turn off ZFS access time. Uh, I'm going to read a mixture of these. Um, this ZFS set A time equals off, Z root. Uh, disable login messages, touch uh, home slash dot hush login, which I think I had seen before in the podcast, but I didn't, I couldn't remember it, so it was great to see again. Uh, disable send mail, enable DMA. Disable legacy SSH hosts keys, host keys and regenerate. Update the base system, the FreeBSD update, fetch install, ampersand, ampersand, reboot. And after the reboot, FreeBSD update install. Install basic software, uh, package install, do as fish, git, htop, mosh, neovim, um, and, and set up their, and change their shell to fish. Um, set up do as, set up PF firewall, um, turn on the PF firewall, and then turn on um, time synchronization, sysrc ntpd enable equals yes, and then reboot. And that's all we do on, on the first line on the server. Cool. cool. Thank you. This is for your uh, automation scripts. Definitely something good to add. Uh, that is now uh, the headlines for this week. But we also have news roundup this week with an old computer rescue for the X201. That is uh, quite an old machine so far. But, uh, oh, I like this uh, blog post here. On trial, triapool.cz. Okay. Time and time again, the machine is proven to be timeless. And we have a nice uh, colorless, but nevertheless nice rendering of our RunBSD sticker. Very popular still. Uh, and it starts with, listen, they made me do it. I was like you, doing my secret private computing on a 20-year-old machine because the keyboard was nice and the purr of the fan bearable and the low-resolution screen let me use the fixed 8 font without a magnifying glass or X render dash dash scale. But the devil swooped in, bearing tales of newer tech, faster CPUs, smarter memories, quicker drives, and flawless OpenBSD compatibility. The Pentium M man's time drew to a close. But what of it? The only lispy wizard they call Matto acquired an X205 ThinkPad and praised it to no ends. Jealousy split a synapse and I descended down into the bowels beneath the machine boneyard. As I, was, as if on cue, there it was, an X201 with a busted fan and cracked plastics. A few tombstones to the right, another one, with a busted screen but mint bezel. The grave robbery was fined at about $60 for the two machines. Uh, Dollar Palmer said it was full moon that night. I brought them home and got to work. Under candlelight, I dissected the corpses using the best available parts from either. It was soon over. An incense stick is an incense stick is lit. A quick prayer to the spirit of the machine spoken, and the new X two O one boots. By the way, it's very close to. Uh, Halloween, so I might have, uh, might have picked up something so, here. So you're getting carried away. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the hard way. This is one of, that is probably the most annoying ThinkPad I dealt with when it comes to replacing the fan. You have to remove everything to get to the fan at the very bottom. 11 screws, in my case, 
it wasn't a big deal since I was gutting it out completely. But compared to the T42, there the fan or where the fan is accessible as soon as one removes the keyboard. It's a lot more work. So at least most of the SKUs here are the same and the three shorter ones have a different color. The high intellect individual will take a photo of where the screws are before removing them, but I never made it that far. Might as well just remove the modem slash Bluetooth card while you're at it. The CPU is sorted on and most RAM it can do is eight gigabytes. Okay, put in a fresh SSD with a bunch of nonsense courtesy of DevU Random, a quick stop in the BIOS, disable hyperthreading and anything you will never use and move on. Okay, then they have a bunch of things like spiked fish in the fuel tank. What can I say? OpenBSD installation is still the simplest, most effective procedure out there. Nowadays, even disk encryption is part of the interactive script. Once it's done, it's done. Reboot and voila. There's a very little... There's little one needs to do after this point. You're already sitting with a complete operating system machine and a fully featured operating system. Uh, operational machine, yeah. All, alas, hackers be tweaking. So poor man's tips. Well, now what? You'll probably want to enable ABMD to be able to suspend the machine and possibly change the CPU frequency. So they show you uh, or us how to do that via uh, a couple of RCCTL commands. Then they have something about XenoDM auto-login. If you're using full disk encryption and are the sole user of the machine, to me it makes no sense to be putting in two passwords and booting or when booting the machine. XenoDM lets you automatically log in the user of your choice without the need to enter a password. Okay, so that's done. And the, the rodent tickler. Uh, to make the track point at middle point, uh, of the mouse operate as intended, add these to your X session or X init or C if you're starting X manually. So they provide those options. And you can find them, of course, on the blog by uh, just copy and pasting it. If you're going to be using the CWM window manager, you might want to switch window resize and window lower, and they provide also the way to do that. The finale. If you're hunting for old machines at the local bazaar, it's worth noting that most sellers will ship their machines with Windows, trying to appeal to the wider public. Treat it as a chance to update the BIOS and firmware easily if it's not up to date before replacing it with something better. As was advertised, this is the machine for the fish. It's been about a month and I ran into no issues. This is a real no-nonsense setup. Suspend works, hibernation works with a new battery. It can stay up for around 7 hours. But don't feel bad for the Pentium M man. He will return this July for the old computer challenge. Ah, this is still going on. Excellent. Keep on computing, Technomancers. Very nice. That's that's just phasing Benedict <laughs> with our shows and, and finding this blog post. The old computer challenge has already happened. Oh, did it? And, okay. And we, and we covered it. There's another one next year, probably. <laughs> yeah, but that was about the 2023 <laughs> one. Uh, these, these are, uh, I don't know, like cheap, expensive. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, no it's, idea. Okay. Yeah, it's certainly cool to recycle these. Next, we have an article on undeadly.org, uh, the OpenBSD journal. Um, this comes from the SecD and Rooted department, and it is a call for testing for SEC for root-based IPsec VPNs, a new tool for creating flexible root-based site-to-site virtual private networks, site-to-site VPNs, is entering its call for testing phase in OpenBSD current. In a message to a tech mailing list on the 4th of July, 2023, David Gwen, DLG presented a diff that adds a new virtual network interface dubbed SEC. The message reads, TLDR, this adds SEC PTP IP interfaces. Traffic in and out of these interfaces are protected by IPsec security associations, but there's no flows, security policy database entries. 
associated with these essays. The policy for using second interfaces in their essays is root-based instead. Longer version. I was going to use make IPsec great again um, as a subject line, but I thought better of it. Yeah. The reason I started on this was to better interoperate with site-to-site VPNs, in particular AWS site-to-site VPNs and Ohu Discovery VPN, ADVPN stuff on Fortinet, FortiGate appliances. Both of these negotiate IPsec tunnels and can carry any traffic at the IPsec level, but use BGP and routes to direct traffic into those tunnels. SEC is equivalent to a GIF interface with its encapsulated packets protected by ESP in transport mode. You route packets into the interface, SEC or GIF, and it gets encrypted and sent to the peer, which decapsulates the packet, the traffic. The main difference in how is how is in how the essays for these connections are negotiated. Neither of these things want to negotiate ESP transport mode to protect GIF4 packets. They want to negotiate ESP tunnel mode for uh, 000-0 to 000-0. The fact that IPsec and tunnel mode and GIF mode use the same IP protocol number also causes a lot of confusion in the kernel and SPD. After trying a bunch of different configurations out and then trying to hack up IPsec CTL and Isa KimD, uh, and then talking to Marcos to Tob He and S Then. We came up with SEC. The idea isn't unique to us, though it has been mooted in RC3884, section 4.11. Cisco has VTI, Juniper has SD0, Linux has VTI, and XFRM interfaces, and FreeBSD has IPsec underscore IF, and NetBSD has IPsec IF. The kernel has been modified so Ike Daemons can inject an SA with an IFS extension message attached, which specifies which SEC the SA is for and which direction it should be processing traffic for. If an essay has this iFace config on it, the IPSP code skips the SPD side of things and instead makes these essays available to SEC for its use. I've tweaked Isaac... Com- I, 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 I don't know how to pronounce this. There's too many consonants. Difficult. An IPSec CTL, so they support new config options that let you configure essays for SEC. Most of the changes in Isaac D are so it can continue to negotiate the right stuff with the right peer. But then short circuits the kernel config so that only essays with the IFS extension are injected. None of the flows get inserted. Tob HE has done the same for Ike D, and he's reused the IFS config and special cased the handling of second interfaces. For IPsec control and ISACOMD, the config looks like this. Um, and, and, and then there's more config examples, uh, a lot more config examples. Um, I've got equivalent config with IGD working, but to Tob HE wrote that I don't think it's fair for me to steal his thunder. Thoughts? Is it worth consider- worth continuing with? The message then goes on with the diff itself, which you can take in from an inbox near you if you're subscribed to Tech App or one of the mailing list archives, such as this one, and then there's a link to an archive. If you have the time, skill, and resources to test and report back, please do. Awesome. Yeah. I guess uh, Jason was already uh, quite excited about it, and now that it's more uh, known to people or more available, then I guess we'll hear more about it in the future. Uh, We thought you should know how to send syslog messages using command line utilities, and we found a tutorial for you uh, on a website we featured uh, in earlier episodes called Sleepless Beasties Notes, but... This is less of a beastie blog, as you may have uh, errorously thought. This is mostly a Linux blog, but in this case, it's kind of 
the same since uh, syslog is basically the same everywhere. So the preliminary preliminary, preliminary information That's reads. Today, can we? It, 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 yeah, very difficult language here. Um, Sending syslog messages using Logger, Bash, and Netcat command line utilities. So at first, you need to know about RFC 3164, the BSD syslog protocol, and RFC 5424, the syslog protocol. SD's RFC document, a crucial uh, way to understand the behavior of the syslog protocol. Uh, so they talk about uh, how the message priority is calculated using the formula facility times 8 plus the severity. Uh, so user.notice is, of course, 1 times 8 plus 5, which means 13. And they list uh, the whole uh, yeah, table of facilities, like kernel messages, user-level messages, UUCP subsystem. If you get something from that, then you're really old. Uh, the clock daemon, a log alert, for example, and you have uh, from 16 to 23, you have local use that you can define on your own, like your own message types. And then you have various codes for severity. You have, it doesn't even have a code. The emergency system is unusable. And uh, one is alert. Action must be taken immediately up to seven, which is debug uh, level messages. And six is what most log messages typically are in my uh, understanding, informational messages. Okay. So sample message using RFC 3164 protocol format. So you have the date, and then uh, what kind of level and severity you have, and then the message itself, like user Milos uh, started the export process. Things you need to know, or the system should protocol. Then the sample message using RFC 5424 protocol format is a bit more uh, diverse because it, uh, the date format is uh, more precise because it has fractional numbers after the uh, seconds, and it even has... Uh, the proper timing, like which time zone and all into it. Then they, of course, also list the uh, severity and the type of service and then the actual message. Okay, logger. Send sample messages using logger utility where you can say logger dash dash UDP dash dash server, localhost, uh, a port, the priority that you want to send, a tag, for example, a service message. And then you can say user who am I started the export process. And then this gets locked like a regular log entry. You can also send sample messages using logger to uh, using RFC 5424 format, and they both show how to do that. You can also redirect, of course, echoes from your favorite shell to def UDP slash localhost 514. So that also uh, ends up in the log. Oh, nice. I didn't know that. And you could use netcat, send sample messages using the netcat utility by echoing your message and then netcatting that dash q0 dash u localhost yeah, and then port 514, which is your Arsys log port. Cool. Very nice. And the same is true for uh, the here command. You can also say netcat dash q and provide a triple less than sign and then your message that ends up in your log. Very nice. Log as much as possible or only as much as you need. But definitely give logs if something goes wrong. It helps to debug. Don't you love how much the internet has changed that baked into syslog is the FTP daemon? Oh, yeah. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's coming forever. right along. It's, it's but never, I mean, and you, you, the UUCP subsystem. You've been reading the RFC, right? 
yeah, but yeah. I mean, these are just going to be baked in values forever because they were the most important things, and now, uh, now not so much. Yeah, time moves on, and now we have RSS lock. But that's a story for another time. Uh, going into the feedback and questions section. We... No, you've missed one. You oh, missed sorry. One. Oh, totally. Last... Up... Yeah. yeah, wrong. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Last up in the <laughs> news item today, we have a blog post by uh, Sebastian Toronto. Uh, okay, yeah, I think I see your name. Toronto, yeah. not Seb- Toronto. Sebastiano Toronto. Yeah. Next up, <laughs> last in the news roundup this week, we have a blog post by Sebasti- Sebastiano Tronto. Um, I don't know why I'm putting an Italian inflection on that. I don't know if they are Italian. Um, keeping my email sorted the hard way. I recently made some changes to my email setup. In this post, I'll explain the motivation behind making these changes and what I did in practice. Self-hosted. When I got my virtual machine up and running at openbsd.amsterdam, the one where this website is hosted, I originally planned to host my private email server there too. I knew this was probably a hard task, but you know, everything is hard until you learn how to do it. I wanted to do this for a couple of reasons. The main one was to use my at Toronto email address, but I also liked the idea of staying away from large internet companies. My main email address was connected to my Google account. Not that there was anything inherently wrong with using services from these big companies, but I liked the idea of not being too dependent on them. After reading a nice tutorial at oh god, it's back. After reading a nice tutorial at poolp.org, which came up last week, I was a bit discouraged. The guide was well written, all the steps seemed doable if I'd taken one by one, and I was happy to have dug into a topic because I learned a lot. However, an email server apparently consists of a lot of moving pieces. An SMTP server, a spam filter, DNS, DKIM, it had a lot to keep track of. Even assuming that I would be able to set this thing up and keep in mind that each of these pieces does, as soon as a problem of any kind arises, config breaking or updates, domain registration expiring, me messing with my VM making it unreachable, I knew I had to be the one to fix the mistake, and I cannot afford to be immediately available whenever something bad happens. Sometimes I might not have a full week where I don't have, I might have a full week where I don't have time to fiddle with SMTPD and whatnot, and I can't afford being unreachable by email for a week. My old setup, until September 2022, uh, having abandoned the idea of self-hosting, I looked for alternatives. I figured if my goals were to use my own domain and stay away from Google, I could sign up for a smaller email provider that offers custom domains. Turns out there were a lot of them. After some careful consideration, I decided to go with mailbox.org. I like their transparency and privacy focus and the fact that they're based in the EU. I pay three euros a month. The one euro tier does not offer custom domains. Setting up the server side was quite simple. Using custom domains requires a tiny bit of work, and it was all explained in FAQs. On my local machine I used, and still use the amazing mblaze, which is essentially mh for mailder folders. I don't know what mh is. Uh, message handling. Uh, in practice, mblaze is a set of commands to manage emails directly from the command line without using a graphical environment like a TUI, uh, like MUT. The system is incredibly flexible. Check it out if you don't know it. Being just a mail user agent, Emblaze cannot retrieve or send email. These tasks can be accomplished by other pieces of software. I used MSMTP uh, for sending email and MPOP for downloading it from Mailbox's server. As the name suggests, MPOP uses POP3 protocol instead of the more common IPAP. IMAP instead of the more common IMAP. The main difference is that POP3 simply retrieves your email while IMAP keeps the server and client folders synchronized. There are many advantages and disadvantages to this choice. I won't go into them in detail. As for other devices, my local mailbox folder is kept in sync with my server using SyncThing. I also use a mail client on my phone with IMAP connected directly to the mail server. 
I don't know if that's the name of a client or not. Nitpicking. Since I'm subscribed to a couple of high traffic mailing lists that I read just for curiosity, it's necessary for me necessary for me to have a way to download and view regular emails separately from those coming from mailing lists. This one was kind of easy to set up with MPOPs filters, but my configuration was a bit of a hack. One disadvantage of the solution was that it only served the problem solved the problem with my laptop. On webmail and on my phone, the inbox is a complete mess of mailing list newsletters and a few important emails. After thinking about it for a while, uh, that an elegant solution would be to set up an alternative email address for receiving mailing list emails. Then I would manage these, email, these mailboxes differently. Setting up aliases on mailbox.org was easy, but unfortunately all my Toronto.net addresses used the same inbox, so I did not have to solve any problem at all. I could add some subfolders and set up filters so that incoming email gets sorted out, but the app on my phone could not read subfolders and the mailbox did not allow top-level folders or couldn't find a way to create them. Besides, syncing with IMAP folders was not something I found particularly exciting, but there was another solution. Since September 2022, I decided to try and redirect the mailing list emails to my personal server. Configuring OpenBSD's SMTP to receive emails from one specific one outside source, my mailbox.org account, and sort them into some local folder is an order of magnitude either than setting up a full-fledged mail server. No problems with DKIM, no incoming spam, no nothing. It took me a few hours to figure out how to do this, but in the end, it's just a matter of configuring a few filters on mailbox.org and adding a couple of lines to etcmailsntp.conf. On my mailbox.org webmail, I simply set up a filter to redirect any mail sent to list.example.com to my private server. No copy of these emails is kept on the server, so we don't clutter my normal IBAP inbox. I risk missing a few emails if my email goes down, but it's a public mailing list. I could just send those emails to something at toronto.net, um, otherwise they would simply be taken care of by my mailbox. MX records from our name point to their servers, but it turns out you can send email to a server using its IP address as long as the server is configured to accept such mail. Uh, the second step is configured using SMTPD, OpenBSD's default mail server daemon to deal with incoming mail. Uh, and then right at the end, happy now, yes. This new setup works, and I'm therefore happy when things work. Of course, one might make the case that things worked well before. I'm happy that I could work my way around using a basic SMTPD configuration. Besides being useful knowledge on its own, it may make a second attempt at self-hosting my mail less daunting. I don't know if I'm ever going to get to try that, though. Hmm. Okay. Very nice. So check out the rest of the blog. It has a other uh, nice collection of uh, other Unix uh, related uh, yeah, tutorials or things you might want to be interesting. And I happen to click on the top part where it says cubing, speed cubing. Oh, I did that too. Yeah. Yeah. They're like a world champion uh, yeah. speed cuber. Impressive. It's crazy. <laughs> I can't even solve a single. Blindfolded. <laughs> it's uh, uh, inconceivable to me. It's yeah, wonderful. Like hands uh, tied behind <laughs> your back and uh, stuff like that. Um. BSD now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud. You can be sure that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what is duplicated so that band it then assembles the data into compressed blocks and creates them with your local private key. And this key never leaves your system. The data is then uploaded into the cloud. Even if someone is able to obtain your data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. 
Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code and make sure it does what we say it does. And Tarsnap has bug bounties so that if you find errors in the code, you can get paid for helping make the software better. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse not to have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Okay, yeah, so now we're getting into the feedback and questions this week. Uh, we got a couple of questions, so we might as well cover them here. If you want to ask us questions as well, send them to feedback at bsdnow.tv so this section is less empty in the future. So the first one is uh, Albin with a couple of links. Uh, Albin says, hi, thank you for a great show. I remember that you asked for links, inquiries, questions in an early episode. Here I come. Thank you for listening. Uh, that has been redacted by JT, our uh, show editor, because, well, we'll use it in an upcoming episode. We might as well keep you waiting a little bit longer. But definitely thanks for sending us in. Anything you find that we have missed uh, in the past or haven't covered yet, by all means, let us know. Great. And then next up, we have some feedback from Douglas on best practices. And Douglas writes, Hello, guys. I've been silently listening to your show for a while. I'd enjoy it as a source of learning on my path towards running FreeBSD as a daily driver. Thanks, Douglas. I have, of course, gone through the handbook, um, which is great. And I've gone through the excellent website by Vermidon in order to get basic GUI desktop in place. I'm hoping that you have play, have places to turn for regular users of examples of a few subjects. What I'm hoping to find are what are considered best practices for security and hard running with tutorial and explanation. I want real-world, everyday use of YubiKey, encrypted drive backup and restore, uh, exposed ports, user permissions, and ACLs, pretty much anything else that would be this is what you should do if you care about the stuff kinds of things. Hopefully that all makes sense. I use LibreWolf for things that are sensitive online, KeyPassXC for password manager to a file, have enabled Jelly encryption for the system. Ideally, if I could have anything, I would have a home NetCloud style server that would sync over something like WireGuard to Graphene OS phone, which I'm now using. And then that home server would be backed up to something like Tarsnap or incremental LTO tapes that I would take offsite. I just want to find others that care about these things and are willing to share a more concise place versus the shotgun approach of multiple tabs of garbage on various websites to figure out the most up-to-date every user everyday user aspects of these things. I'm somewhat technical, but nowhere near the level of knowledge needed for this, especially not on FreeBSD. Where do you recommend I turn? Um, break these down into parts and look for parts of FreeBSD. I mean, some of the websites are not good, but there's a lot of really high quality content out there. Um, there's a lot of examples we covered in this show. I mean, that's all this show is, is examples of people writing about this stuff. Um, and there's good conference talks recently about um, own cloud and similar stuff on FreeBSD. So there's there's pieces there. Um, you could try the FreeBSD forums or the FreeBSD Discord as other venues where you could get more interactive conversations. You could speak to people and ask questions. Mm-hmm. Clara um, website comes to mind. Clara yeah, there's a bunch home. of places. And yeah. Uh, yeah. When when you figure this out, write a blog post and then we'll cover it on the show, Douglas. Yeah, even better, right? So that's the and looking at what you're doing, it's quite a, a step into it already. Like LibreWolf and all, I haven't set that up uh, on my own. So maybe you have something to offer for other people, and then a nice uh, feedback uh, loop happens uh, with sharing and caring. Cool, very nice. Uh, yeah, you definitely find something in the forums and other places. Uh, 
or just follow along on the uh, never-ending BSD Now episodes in the future, which always have nice, interesting. And because we learn a lot from those as well, right? It's not that we know everything, uh, not by a stretch. Um, yeah, so very uh, interesting to see what's coming up in the future. Thank you, uh, thank you, Douglas. And next is Patrick with uh, some ideas for or feedback ideas. Hey guys, that goes. I enjoy the show, and I know you've been looking for more feedback, so I wanted to throw a couple of ideas out there. First, I know there are some software projects out there that would be interested in porting this software to FreeBSD, but perhaps they don't have team members skilled in programming for FreeBSD. Okay, is there some kind of central hub for software projects to advertise their desire to port to FreeBSD and for programmers familiar with FreeBSD to find projects to contribute to? Uh, in the same vein, second, uh, maybe BSD Now could make it a regular part of the show to highlight a software project each week that is working on porting the project to FreeBSD and is looking for developers. If you could decide to do this, I'd like to suggest DOS EMU2, okay, with a link to it. Uh, JT's comment there is, People should email a software project that they know or that they are porting or have put out a call for devs. Yeah, um, JT would be fine if more people send these. So we have something every week to fill in. And the third part is FreeBSD's Linux compatibility is continuing to grow by leaps and bounds. Is there currently any effort or is it even feasible for FreeBSD to have something comparable to Waydroid, which would allow Android to run natively without the overhead of emulation? Uh, so yeah, let's uh, go through these. So um, where do you find people? So mostly it would be the ports uh, folks. So check out the porter's handbook. They have uh, quick porting and more detailed porting instructions there. You should also drop into the IRC channel for the ports people because there's plenty of folks around who are also maintainers and not just uh, or not committers themselves but they have a lot of experience porting software to freebsd and sometimes it's requiring just a rewrite of the paths where linux tries to look at these or some more detailed stuff uh, that's required to patch binaries so there you can find a lot of people who have done this in the past and can connect uh, software projects with people who have the knowledge to do this port definitely uh, do this because we can never have enough software that people have um, running on FreeBSD that's where the value comes from for many people like having their favorite software running also on FreeBSD and that way it's good to connect these two and yeah since JT mentioned uh, for your second uh, suggestion that we should highlight a software project each week um, yeah if there's enough to provide we could have a small section if, there if people tell us what the projects are but it's a lot of work to find these yeah. <laughs> but we'll happily raise attention draw attention to things which need developers that's not a problem at all hmm. yeah and jason and i have uh or are starting a little thing where we before we go into the headlines uh talk a little about amongst themselves hey what are you doing uh currently what are you working on on FreeBSD or other bsds so that people kind of know oh we're making progress or this are the things that are currently interesting to us as moderators and maybe you can get something out of there or have a tip for us or kind of know that we're not just uh uh having everything perfect we're also struggling with certain things or things don't work out the way we intended so this is just a bit of a, a background thing uh, that you get so this could be also a thing like oh i wanted to try out the software it didn't work it got errors it uh, whatever reason didn't do what we expected 
And so it could be that uh, people chime into this and say, ah, you need to do this kind of command line switch or change this config file. And Linux compatibility, any thoughts there? Waydroid, I'm not too big into the, the, the Droid environment on, or the Android and ecosystem, so can't tell you much about that. Uh, or if anything is anyone is working on that. But also ask this on the Poise channel. I guess there are people maybe interested in or are already doing that. Uh, so you find our IRC channels uh, from the FreeBSD wiki. Also, isn't there also a link from the FreeBSD website itself? Why would people jump into IRC from I there? Well, mailing lists, user groups. Uh, hmm. Yeah, so it's um, uh, it should be FreeNode, right? Um, or Libera uh, FreeBSD-Ports, I think. That should be uh, a good way to find a bunch of people who are working. Or if you find someone in uh, the area that has already done certain kind of work from this uh, similar ports, maybe, then directly contact them, send them an email, and ask friendly. Uh, that's pretty much it. Thanks for these feedbacks. We'll see uh, if we can integrate them. And uh, yeah, good luck with your uh, porting uh, projects or if you're directly in, uh, involved in those. Cool. People are providing interesting stuff. You can also join our Telegram channel. We should mention this. Uh, HTTPS t.me slash bsdnow is the address for that. We also have a uh, fairly silent, only when a new episode comes out, Twitter slash X or Twix, whatever it's called these days, channel. Uh, where you can just see that a new episode is out. Uh, of course, our main website is bsdnow.tv and Patreon is patreon.com slash bsdnow where you could uh, get free episodes if you're interested in that. Anything else I forgot? I guess that's... No, that's everything. Okay. Yeah, so thanks for listening to this episode. We will be back with another one next week. And definitely... Let us know if you have something else to mention in an episode to our feedback at bsdnow.tv email address. Benedict, out. 